Praise God. All right, let's open in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you that we can come here as your people to be empowered and to experience you, to experience your goodness, and to experience the blessing of fellowship, Lord. We pray that we would come into your presence today and we would meet you and it would change our lives. And we thank you for your grace and amen. All right, so today's sermon is titled Being Sold Out for God's Kingdom. It's a sermon I've been wanting to do for a while. It has to do with... um, Three very important truths that all Christians need to understand. So the premise is pretty simple. All Christians should be sold out for God's kingdom. Wild, right? But it's true. So all Christians should be sold out for God's kingdom. I bet you already thought that. I hope you already thought that. Um, But we're going to explain that in a bit more detail. So when I say sold out for God's kingdom, I'm going to kind of define that as your heart is grabbed by three important truths. Three important truths. Um, And these truths, these ideas, are ideas that you need to have as a belief and as an attitude. It needs to be something that you more than just think merely intellectually. It has to be like really part of you. It has to grip you deep enough that you feel it and act on it, and it's really a part of your life. It has to be an attitude, a belief and an attitude. So what are these three important ideas? Number one, having the belief and attitude that the only real point to your life on earth is to be involved in God's kingdom. Number two, Having the belief and attitude that every resource and opportunity that you have in life is there to be leveraged for God's kingdom. And number three, having the belief and attitude that no matter how much suffering you go through in this life, if it's for the sake of God's kingdom, it will be worth it. So we need to believe and hold all three of these things. It's not enough to just have one of them. We're going to explain from Scripture how they're all undeniably true, and we need to have all three of them as attitudes. And if we have all three of them as attitudes every day, you know, God's kingdom will become the most important thing to us, as it should be. So let's look at each of these ideas in deeper detail. All right, let's start with the first one. The only real point to your life on earth is to be involved in God's kingdom. So I want to look at four points to kind of show that. The first one, um, the purpose of your existence is to glorify God and serve him. Let's turn to Isaiah 43, verses 5 through 7. So this is uh, God talking to you know, speaking to the nation of Israel, comforting them about their captivity. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory whom I formed and made. So everyone called by God's name, 
or I would say anyone at all really, but you can see that in the rest of Scripture, is created for God's glory. God didn't make us just to do whatever we want. God gives us freedom to do a lot of what we want, but God made us for him. God created us for his glory. Let's look at the second reason or second scripture that shows, you know, there's many scriptures that show it, but for the sake of time, we'll only look at two of them this morning, but that show that the purpose of your existence is to glorify God and serve him. Uh, Let's look at 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 14 and 15. Either way, Christ's love controls us. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old life. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ, who who died and was raised for them. So not only did God create us for himself and for his glory, but if you're a Christian, you know, Christ died to redeem you that you might not live for yourself, but for Christ who died for you. So the purpose of our existence is to glorify God and serve him. So one thing I want to talk about with this idea that the, the point of your life on earth is to be involved in God's kingdom uh, kind of like a question. So this is the second sub-point. But, um, you know, if it's better, the scriptures say it's better to be with the Lord apart from the body. It's better, it'd be better to be in the fullness of God's presence, like not here on earth. So if that's the case, why aren't we there now? Why doesn't God just take us into his presence and perfectly sanctify us as soon as we come to know him? Let's look at uh, two verses just to kind of look at the it's better to be with the Lord idea. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 5, verses 6 through 9. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from our Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Let's also look at Philippians 1, 21 through 26. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the, f- in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, or which I would prefer, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart. And be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So the scriptures make it plain, you know, it'd be better for us to be with Christ in his, you know, direct presence. But God doesn't just take us to his direct presence as soon as we become a Christian. We have, you know, the rest of this life where we still struggle with sin and aren't perfectly in God's presence. Why is that? 
Well, Paul knew that God would allow him to live instead of allowing him to die because he knew that he had fruitful labor to do. He said he was assured of it because of the fruitful labor. To live in the flesh means fruitful labor for me. It would be much more enjoyable if as soon as you became a Christian, you immediately went to the presence of God and were perfected and free from sin. And, you know, free to enjoy his glory and his presence in their fullness. That would be great. But God doesn't do that for some reason. Why, is, why doesn't God do that? God wants us to be here because he has purposes for us here on earth in this life. God wants to use us here and now on earth in this life so he can show his power through us, through sanctification and through using us to expand his kingdom. That's why Paul knew he would stay longer, because he had fruitful labor to do. So God obviously doesn't need us in order to expand his kingdom or to spread the gospel, um, but God wants to use us. We looked in our last two sermons that um, uh, Paul said God's power is made perfect in weakness, or God said that God's power is made perfect in weakness. That doesn't mean that God gets more power. It means his power is best shown, shown as clearly as it can be shown through human weakness. So God likes to use humans to spread the gospel. He likes to use imperfect humans to spread the gospel. God doesn't need us to expand his kingdom, but he wants to use us to expand his kingdom. So keep that in mind, um, you know, in this. God's purpose for us living on earth is so that we can glorify God through being used to expand his kingdom. That's his purpose for, you know, us not immediately going to be with Christ. So no rapture? No rapture but that's for a different sermon. The third point I want to talk about, you know, having to do with this idea that the main point of your life on earth is to be involved in God's kingdom. Once your earthly life is over, you won't care about anything you did except for what you did for God's kingdom. So we really need to take into account the significance of eternity. Like, it, it's kind of hard to grasp. Um, but I, I have kind of uh, an earthly example of the fact that you won't really care about what you did in this life or what your life was like except for what you did for God's kingdom. So if you're over 20, you probably don't spend much time thinking about when you were five. If you're over 20 years old, you probably don't spend much time thinking about what your life was like when you were five years old. You probably don't remember much what you did on most days when you were five years old. And you probably don't really care. If you ever were really happy over a cool toy you got, you don't really care anymore now that you're an adult. That was at least 15 years ago. And if you were really, really mad or sad that your mom went and buy you candy, you know, you don't care anymore. You don't think about it. It's not important to you. It means nothing that that happened 15 or 20 or 30 years ago. It means literally nothing to you. 
But if you did something when you were five that impacted your life so much that it still affects you today, I bet you care about that. If you would have broken your leg when you were five and it never recovered, you would care about that. If you, when you were five, would have stumbled on $10,000 and put it in an IRA and now have about a million, I bet you would care about that. As an adult, you, don't, you barely remember and don't care about your life when you were five except for what still impacts you today. You care about the things that impact you today. So that's just, you know, an illustration to prove the point. Once your earthly life is over, you won't care about anything you did or any of your life circumstances except for what you did for God's kingdom. And that's something we should take into account every single day. When we get tempted to be caught up with whether or not uh, we get to enjoy video games or whether or not our evening is going well or whether or not our boss is being nice to us, you should remember that you're not going to care about that one day. You won't care at all. You'll care about how you responded because that will affect, to some degree, your life in eternity. That's point number three. You know, once your earthly life is over, you won't care about anything you did or what your life was like except for what you did for God's kingdom. Point number four. The expansion of the kingdom of heaven is the most important thing going on in the world by far. You know, once God's kingdom is culminant, once it comes in its fullness, once the expansion hits the point where um, eventually God's kingdom is going to expand to a certain point where he'll return and, you know, then he'll bring the fullness of the kingdom. And then human life will be everything that it was meant to be before the fall. There will be no more injustice or sickness or pain or death. And we won't have any hindrances to knowing and enjoying God. And we'll get to know him more and more and better and better forever. We'll get to enjoy him more and more and better and better. But, you know, God's kingdom coming in its final form, so therefore the expansion of God's kingdom, because that's what's leading to that, is the biggest thing that could ever happen to the human race. It's the most significant thing that could happen at all. The development of quantum computing, if you follow that, isn't the biggest thing that could benefit humanity. God's culminate kingdom is. Finding sources of renewable energy for dirt cheap prices isn't the biggest thing that could benefit humanity. God's culminate kingdom is. The development of hyperspace travel and the cultivation of other planets couldn't be the biggest thing that could happen for humanity. The expansion and coming of God's kingdom is. This needs to be something that grips our hearts. This needs to be something we understand in our, the core of our being. So anyways, I say all that to say the main point, the real point of your life on earth is to be involved in God's kingdom. That's the first thing we have to have as a belief and an attitude. 
You have to really understand that. The second idea, the second important truth that we need to hold to, every resource and opportunity that you have is there to be leveraged for God's kingdom. So let's look at why that is. Number one, it's just the necessary conclusion of God's kingdom being uh, the main point of your life. If being involved in God's kingdom is the main point of your life, then by necessary implication, every resource and opportunity you have is there to be leveraged for God's kingdom. But let's look at some more reasons why. Um, Number two, we're commanded to make the most of our time. So let's look at two verses that show that real quick. Let's look at Ephesians 5, 15, and 16. Look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. I like um, the reason Paul gives. So that word evil, I forget um, how to pronounce it. But if you look it up, um, it doesn't mean morally evil, at least not in this case. Uh, It can also, you know, evil can be used to define or to speak of harm or of something that's not good. And what he's really saying is because the days or because life is filled with pain and suffering. Evil as in like when the writer of Ecclesiastes says that life is full of evil, it's full of pain and suffering. So we should make the most of it. We should seek to get something good out of it. But we're commanded to make the most of our time. Walk as wise, making the best use of time. Uh, he also says in Colossians, Colossians 4 verse 5, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of time. So we're commanded to make the best use of time. And that's important in and of itself. That's something we need to understand. But something I want us to think about and kind of press out is that um, in order to make the best use of your time, you have to make the best use of everything, every resource and opportunity you have. Your time is your life. If a person has 50 years left on earth, that is their time, right? That is the time that they have that they are commanded to make the best of, the best use of. But the only way to make the best use of that 50 years is to make the best use of all the opportunities and resources that come with it. If you have time and you have opportunities, those can't be divorced. Those can't be separated. In order to make the best use of time, you have to make the best use of opportunities and resources. It's impossible to make the best use of time without also making the best use of opportunities and resources. So every resource and opportunity we have is there to be leveraged for God's kingdom and we should seek to make the best use of them. And the fact that we're commanded to make the best use of our time means not only should we make the best use of time, but of every resource and opportunity that we have. Third point I want to look at regarding how every resource and opportunity that we have is there to be leveraged for God's kingdom. 
We are stewards. We are stewards for God's kingdom. Let's look at um, Luke 19, verses 11 through 27. The crowd was listening to everything Jesus said. And because he was nearing Jerusalem, he told them a story, a parable, to correct the impression that the kingdom of God would begin right away. He said, a nobleman was called away to a distant empire to be crowned king and then return. Before he left, he called together ten of his servants and divided among them ten pounds of silver, saying, invest this for me while I'm gone. But his people hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we do not want him to be our king. After he was crowned king, he returned and called in the servants to whom he had given the money. He wanted to find out what their profits were. The first servant reported, Master, I invested your money and made ten times the original amount. Well done, the king exclaimed. You are a good servant. You have been faithful with the little I entrusted you, so you will be a governor of ten cities as your reward. The next servant reported, Master, I invested your money and made five times the original amount. Well done, the king said. You will be governor over five cities. But the third servant brought back the only the original amount of money and said, Master, I hid your money and kept it safe. I was afraid because you are a hard man to deal with, taking what isn't yours and harvesting crops you didn't plant. You wicked servant, the king roared. Your own words condemn you. If you knew that I'm a hard man who takes what isn't mine and harvests crops I didn't plant, why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest on it. Then turning to the others standing nearby, the king ordered, take the money from the servant and give it to the one who has 10 pounds. But master, they said, he already has 10 pounds. Yes, the king replied, and to those who use well what they are given, even more will be given. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. And as for these enemies of mine who didn't want me to be their king, bring them in and execute them right here in front of me. So that, um, you know, is one of two parables that kind of illustrate that we are stewards to God. They're a picture of God's kingdom, and they show that we are stewards to God. We steward this life, and God wants us to use it to expand his kingdom. And God will reward us for our stewardship. When we're judged... um, for those who are Christians, you know, we're covered by the blood of Christ. Praise God. Amen. But there's still going to be a judgment of reward. So it'll be a judgment that doesn't have to do with condemnation, but that has to do with our stewardship. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15. According to the grace of God given to me, Like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. 
If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And um, Jesus gave several examples of reward throughout the Gospels. Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 42, And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. So we are stewards to God, and we will be rewarded for our stewardship. And I do want to say one thing real quick. Um, Wanting that reward is good. Let's look at Hebrews 11, verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So sometimes the matter of motive can get kind of complicated because we're supposed to be loving, and love isn't self-seeking, right? That's kind of complicated. But the way I think the Bible, the picture it paints, is that we should obey for love and out of faith. And when I say faith, I mean believing that it's worth it to obey God, worth it for your own sake. We should be motivated by both because both are honoring to God. Faith that God is right and is correct and is worth obeying honors God, does it not? And love honors God. It's recognizing that it's worth it to do something just because it pleases God, even if you were to get no personal benefit out of it. Both of those honor God. So if we're missing one of them, that's less honoring to God than we could be. We should have both. Jesus had both. You know, it says somewhere in Hebrews that, um, you know, as Jesus was looking towards the cross, he was thinking of the reward. But it also says that Jesus, you know, cared about us for our sake. For God so loved, loved the world that he sent his son. And uh, Jesus said in John 17 that he sanctifies himself for our sake. So Jesus had the motives of love and faith, love and wanting the reward. And both of them honor God, so we should have both. And I don't think we can really know for certain what the rewards are that we'll get for our stewardship, but I lean towards the idea that they have something to do with an increased capacity to enjoy God. So in the afterlife, you know, we'll fully be in God's presence, so we'll all have fullness of joy. David said in the Psalms, in your presence is fullness of joy, and your presence is pleasures forever. So we'll all have fullness of joy. No one's going to be disappointed in heaven. So how does that work then? What good is the reward? Will will it actually make you any happier? Um, So I like to think of it as, you know, capacity. Bottles have capacity. You can have two bottles that are both full, but one has more than the other because it has more of a capacity. So I lean towards the idea that these rewards have to do with an increased capacity to enjoy God. I think that's really worth thinking about. I lean towards the idea that, you know, heavenly reward has to do with an increased capacity to enjoy God. And that's significant. That's really significant. Fourth idea I want to look at 
in regards to the idea that every resource and opportunity that we have is there to be leveraged for the kingdom of God. Not only are we stewards, but we're soldiers. The Bible uses the uh, word picture of soldiers for Christians a number of times. We're going to quickly look at four of them. I'm a few minutes behind, so moving quickly. We got a lot. Uh, Let's look at 1 Corinthians 9, verse 7. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating of any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? So that we look at that verse just to show the analogy of the soldier being used of a Christian. Let's look at Philippians uh, 2.25. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphrodius, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. Again, in 2 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. And lastly, let's look at Philemon uh, 1, verses 1 and 2. Uh, the opening of the letter to Philemon. Paul, a prisoner for Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apaphia, our sister, and Apricius, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. And this isn't even like all the references. This is just an overview. But we are soldiers for Christ's kingdom. And we are at war. There's a war going on to control the culture and the world and for the you know, winning souls to Christ. You know something about soldiers? They're not concerned. Soldiers at war aren't concerned with whether or not they have the nicest houses or the most expensive food or whether or not they have you know, hours of time in the evening, plenty of time to watch TV and relax. Soldiers at war don't care about that. Soldiers at war care about winning the war. They're concerned with making as much progress as possible, and luxuries are thought of as things that can be enjoyed after the war. Now, I'm not saying that luxuries are bad. God gives us all things to enjoy. You know, we'll quickly look at 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So having luxuries or, you know, plenty of time to relax aren't things that are bad, but those things shouldn't be the priority in a Christian's life. Because we are soldiers and we have important things to do. Our priority should be on God and on being involved in his kingdom. And we shouldn't be distracted by other priorities. Let's look again at 2 Timothy verses two, three, and, uh, chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. You know, Paul's saying to Timothy, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No soldier gets involved, entangled in civilian pursuits. That's not what soldiers do, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. 
So anyways, I say this to say, every resource and opportunity we have as Christians is there to be leveraged for God's kingdom. <laughs> all our time, all our money, all our opportunities. And that's something that's somewhat easy to understand intellectually, but a lot of times that's not part of our attitude. And that needs to be part of our attitude. There's plenty of things you can do that make a difference for God's kingdom with your time and with your money and with your opportunities. You know, with your time, you can serve, you can evangelize, you can disciple, you can pray. Prayer makes a bigger difference for the expansion of the gospel than we think it does. And we're going to have to look at that hopefully in the near future. But um, prayer takes time, but prayer is impactful. There's plenty of things you can do with your time that are important for the expansion of God's kingdom and for being involved in God's kingdom. You can learn. And if you don't, you know, if you don't feel competent to evangelize or disciple, first of all, you should know that all Christians are called to. And secondly, you should know that you, as an adult, have time that you can choose what to do with and you can take time to learn and grow. Frankly, I think any adult should be able to hit 60 hours a week of productivity. As in, beyond your 40-hour-a-week job, I think any adult should be able to hit 20 hours of time doing things that are productive. It might be reading the Bible. It might be, you know, uh, serving in some capacity. It might be, um, you know, don't take things as spending time with your kids is not productive. That's productive because teaching your kids is productive. But any Christian should be able to hit, any adult should be able to hit at least 20 hours a week of productivity through their evenings and weekends, beyond a 40-hour-a-week job, I think. All Christians are called to abound in the work of the Lord. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Now let's look at Ephesians 4, 11 uh, through 12. And God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. The work of the ministry isn't just the work for the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and shepherds and teachers, it's the work of the saints. We are all, we as Christians are all called to take part in the expansion of God's kingdom. I'm running a bit behind on time, so we're going to move to the next section. But you know, there's, Plenty of things you can do as a Christian between your time, your money, your opportunity that you can do for the expansion of God's kingdom. All right, the third idea that we need to have as a belief and an attitude. No matter how much suffering you go through in this life, if it's for God's kingdom, it will have been worth it. That's very important to understand, and that will be very comforting in times of suffering. Let's look at two scriptures real quick. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 and 17. 
so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This light and momentary affliction, by the way, when Paul says light and momentary affliction, he got beat with whips. He was stoned and left for dead. He spent, you know, many sleepless nights in cold and in hunger. He was imprisoned with not modern American prison conditions. But he, he has to say that in comparison, that it's light and momentary affliction, and even then, within comparison, the weight of glory it's building up for us is just beyond all comparison. No matter how much suffering you go through in this life, it's for the sake, if it's for the sake of God's kingdom, it'll be worth it. Let's look at Luke 6, verses 22 and 23. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. That's a huge thing. You got to like hear the intensity and the, the emotion in it. Rejoice and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. That's a significant thing. So number one, if we suffer for Christ's kingdom, which I'm going to explain in a bit, that goes beyond just persecution. There's other ways in which we suffer for God's kingdom, even in countries where persecution isn't really much of a thing. But the reward will be worth it. And you know, the second idea that is a big part of the primary idea that no matter how much suffering you go through in this life, it's for the sake of God's kingdom, it'll be worth it, is that life on earth is so short in comparison. You know, compared uh, to how long, how great our joy will be in heaven, you know, your life on earth won't even feel like two seconds in comparison. You have to remember that for all eternity, when you look back on the suffering you had on earth, it'll seem like nothing in comparison. Paul said the weight of glory is beyond all comparison to our light and momentary affliction. That's significant. But I do want to also say as part of this, even if your suffering isn't caused by persecution, uh, it's, it can still be for God's kingdom, and it's still worth enduring for the sake of God's kingdom. Because you have to endure through it in order to keep serving God. You can't just give up on life, but that's a temptation. We all go through suffering. It's typically not persecution. Um, but, you know, one of the options of how we could respond is we could give up on life. And that's a real temptation. A lot of us, you know, everyone's going to suffer in life, and some of us at certain points are going to suffer really, really badly. And life will be very, very hard at certain points. But we can't just give up on life because of that. 
we have to remember that life is always going to be worth living because it gives us the opportunity to participate in the expansion of God's kingdom and to take part in labor that has a great reward. Living this painful life gives us an important opportunity, one we can't afford to deny or to miss out on. And that's something to remember and to be encouraged by when we're going through tough suffering, especially when we're tempted to give up. So those are uh, the three ideas I wanted to talk about that all Christians need to have as a belief and as an attitude. And this needs to be something that's in our mind and in our heart every day. In order to make the right choices in life, this needs to be something we think about daily. Because how you use your time and how you use your money are things you make choices on every single day. So these beliefs need to be in our mind and in our hearts every day. So uh, let's quickly go back to the slide that has um, the three ideas. So these three ideas, the only real point to your life is to be involved on earth, is to be involved in God's kingdom. Every resource and opportunity you have is there to be leveraged for God's kingdom. And no matter how much suffering you go through in this life, if it's for God's kingdom, it'll be worth it. Those are three attitudes we need to have as Christians. Every Christian should have those three ideas as attitudes. And if that's something you haven't had as an attitude, that's something you need to repent of. If that's something you struggle with, and that's very real and easy to struggle with, especially in modern-day America, you know, that's something you should ask God to give you more of a passion about. You should ask God to work that into your heart. You know, come to the Holy Spirit for grace. Come to Christ for grace. We should be praying that God would help us to have those three ideas as an attitude every day. Have them in the back of our minds and in the outlook on life that we have every day. If that's something that you struggle with, you need to ask God for help with it and you need to meditate on those three ideas and think deeply about them until they get built into your daily outlook on life. But I, I do want to give a reminder that, um, so I want to say this very strongly because it's important, but I also want us to all remember God's grace. We don't take part in the kingdom of God in order to gain his acceptance. Nothing we could do could ever cause God to love us any more or any less than he already does. You know, um, whether or not we actually are good stewards or good soldiers will not affect in the slightest how much God loves us. And that's something we need to remember. Part of the reason God wants us to serve in the expansion of his kingdom is because he wants to bless us with the reward he has for us. Let's look at Philippians 4, 15 through 18. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent um, me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. 
I have received full payment and more and am well supplied, having received from Ephroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So Paul wanted them to give, not because Paul wanted the gift, but because he wanted them to be blessed in giving. And God doesn't love you less than Paul loved them. God wants you to serve and he wants to bless you. God wants you to be part of his kingdom because he wants to bless you. That's something we need to remember. So even though I want us to understand the importance of being involved in God's kingdom, I also I want us to all remember God's grace. We don't in any way, shape, or form serve so that God would love us more. Nothing you could do could ever make God love you any more or any less. But our aim is to pour out our lives for God's kingdom because it's good for us and it glorifies him. Last thing I want to say, um, don't give in to the idea that, oh, I don't have much potential or I couldn't contribute much to the kingdom of God. Don't discount what you have to offer. Um, I want to give a few verses on that. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 8, verse 12. This is Paul speaking to the Corinthians about giving. For if the readiness is there, or if the willingness is there, it's acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Let's also look at Luke 21, verses 1 through 4. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw the poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. If we're tempted to give in to the idea that um, it's not important that we serve in God's kingdom because we don't have much to offer, that points to a heart that thinks that we do it like not in order to please God. That points to heart issues. If you're doing it to please God and all you have is two small copper coins, that's enough. So don't discount what you have to offer. And you know, not only that, but God's power is best shown in human weakness. So if you feel like you don't have much to offer, all the better. But anyways, in conclusion, all Christians should be sold out for God's kingdom. The only real point to... You know, your life on earth is to be involved in God's kingdom. Every resource and opportunity you have is there to be leveraged for God's kingdom. No matter how much suffering you go through in this life, if it's for the sake of God's kingdom, it'll be worth it. So let's close in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for this day and this time to be here, Lord. We thank you for your grace, and we praise you for the great work of redemption you are doing in the earth, Lord. We praise you for how great and glorious you pouring out your love is, Lord. We pray that uh, you would strengthen us and motivate us as we uh, seek to participate in your kingdom, Lord. We pray that you would fill us with your spirit and pour out your spirit on us, and we pray that you would draw close to us and draw us to yourself. And we thank you for your grace, and amen.